the blast from our past network. Hello and welcome to the Blast from Our Past podcast. We are the podcast that brings you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, and more, all from the things of our nostalgic past. I'm John. And I'm Adam. And today we have another album review for you, and boy, is this a monster. We are going to review the 1973 classic rock mega album. Huge. One of the best-selling albums in the world, world, world. Uh, and that is the album The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Adam, this is definitely an album I listened to when I was a kid. I went through a huge classic rock phase. Um, I was in a band in high school where, in addition to original stuff, most of the covers we did were uh, classic rock songs, including one off of this album. Okay. Um, what is your history with this album i wouldn't say this was an album that i attacked or listened to a lot on my own uh it was something i remember either you or mom having just kind of in like the stack of albums at home um so it's one that i definitely got play from you know i definitely mm-hmm. heard stuff and yeah everybody you know what listening to classic rock radio you're going to hear these songs as well uh so it's from of that, um, and then uh, when I was at UGA, uh, I they did a screening at the Tate Center of this album uh, with a certain movie. Well, let's go ahead and talk about that because that is kind of the most probably common pop culture thing associated with this album, and is that is if you run this album along with the Wizard of Oz, somehow it lines up. And tell me, Adam, did it line up? Kind of? Uh, like, you gotta, I think, I didn't go in drunk, and I didn't go in high, and I think that was my problem. Uh, <laughs> now, there were some moments that seemed to have hit well, but at the same time, the M- Wizard of Oz movie is probably, what, at least 70 to 80 minutes, if not longer? Mm-hmm. This is half that so how the hell is it lining up perfectly unless you're playing it twice and like it's just no now there were some coincidental spots i remember like there's one part where like you like the scarecrow like fell down into something or whatnot and it just was a hit perfectly and yes when you know they're talking about money something is happening or something but it's a lot of people just poking shit at stuff it's it's just a coincidence it really is um it it the band has gone on record saying they never intended for that to happen. It is just a strange coincidence. And yeah, um, I have not watched all of The Wizard of Oz with this. I watched a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. And I stopped when it was clear to me that nothing was really lining up. Because yeah. if they were really doing it this way, important things would have lined up with the movie. And it was really just coincidences. Yes, it was. You can really probably put almost any album with most movies and you're going to get a couple things, a couple beats that really ha- hit at the right time on a movie. But that's just, I mean, that's odds. That's coincidence. That's, yeah. you know, it's drugs is what it is. <laughs> yes, I, I can only imagine the only way to correctly watch this <laughs> is if you're high. Woo. So the album was released on March 1st, 1973. It was recorded at the legendary Abbey Road Studios. 
Ah. Uh, which is obviously the home to most of, if not all of, the Beatles albums. I've heard of that band. Um, the band or the album was re- produced by the band itself. But what is notable about uh, the recording of this album is who the engineer was, and that is the legendary Alan Parsons. Oh, the Alan Parsons project. Yes, uh, he is. He was the audio engineer for this album. Okay. And I, I gotta say, it is pretty legendary. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the things that you can associate with legendary on uh, for Alan Parsons. Um, some of the other stuff that he did, maybe some of his cinema things that uh, we will be talking about, I think <laughs> upcoming um, in this show or on this, on this podcast. Um, less so I will say, but y'all, y'all will hear that when, when the episode comes. <laughs> uh, all right. The band Pink Floyd is at this point, David Gilmore on vocals and guitar, Nick Mason on drums, Richard Wright on organ and piano, and Roger Waters on bass. They had a few other additional musicians. Uh, A guy named Dick Perry played saxophone on Us and Them and Money. And the only other one I want to bring up is a woman by the name of Claire Torrey, who did all of the vocals on the great gig in the sky. And we'll talk about that when we get to that one. Cause that is kind of an unusual song. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, all right, Adam, do you have any other fun facts for us about this album? A couple, uh, this album hit number one on the billboard 200 and has been on the billboard 200 charts, a total of 958 weeks, more than any other album in existence. I I can see that because this album never quite goes away. Yeah. It 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 always gets brought back somehow in pop culture and then I like to think that it doesn't go away. It just kind of lingers in the background. That's kind of like their style. Like just <laughs> there's just constantly something in the back but it just kind of keeps, you know, keeps eating at you. Yeah. Uh, so I am ready to kind of dive into the album. Do you have anything else? I did have a couple more things. Oh, sure. If you don't mind. So, um, in, uh, 2020 Rolling Stones listed this album as number 55 of the 500 greatest albums of all time. So it is obviously well known for that. Um, as we, as John mentioned, a huge, huge album, one of the best selling albums of of all time. Specifically, it has an estimated sales of 45 million copies, which is the fourth best selling album in the world. That's amazing. Yep. And, and uh, not just studio album, right? Just albums of all time. Albums of all time. Okay. Yep. yep. I think number one is is Thriller. When we talk that one, that one has like a hundred million estimated, but it's hard to tell. I mean, sometimes they're mm-hmm. hard to tell, but like that one is the number one in the world. But uh, and I can't remember what the other two are. But one of them was the Eagles' greatest hits. Wasn't uh, it? That, I think that was in the U.S. In the U.S., it took over as okay. I think the sound, but I don't think it is as strong worldwide. worldwide. Okay. Yep. Uh, and then also I wanted to talk about the, uh, the cover art, the sleeve for this one, mm-hmm. uh, which depicts a prism spectrum. Uh, it was designed by Storm Thorgerson. Thorgerson? Yeah. Bless you. Uh, <laughs> in response uh, to keyboardist Richard Wright's uh, request for a simple and yet bold design, uh, kind of representing the band's lighting and the album's themes. Uh, that guy, he is designed for a lot of music albums, including Audio Slave, ELO, Genesis, Led Zeppelin, Peter Gabriel, Fish, Wings, and many more. So I just wanted to bring him a little bit to light. 
Well, let's go ahead and dive into the album. Um, we're going to start with, it's actually two songs in one. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about both. And they are called Speak to Me and Breathe. The speak to me part is basically the first minute mm-hmm. or so, and then it dives into breathe, kind of when the uh, when the vocals come in. But to me, this has always ever just been one song. I don't know why they broke it apart. <laughs> Seriously, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I mean, the only kind of thing is in that speak to me section, you're kind of getting these sounds and some different stuff that you're going to hear later in the album. They're just kind of like giving you little hints of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of flow very good, you know, very good, smooth flow into this quote unquote first real song. Um, but it all just blends so much. Like it really is just one song. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I can see is, is that for the music, Nick Mason is credited with writing uh, speak to me, and the rest of the band is credited with writing "Breathe." Okay, so I don't know if maybe they were trying to get separate monetary rights mm-hmm. for both sections, which makes no <laughs> sense because it's all basically in one track anyway. Yeah, why not just credit everyone? Yeah, anyway, it's that part's weird. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that exactly, maybe that writing part is for it. But, yeah, um, yeah, but "Breathe." I mean, you get it's very slow, it's very chill. Um. From kind of looking up lyrics on this one, though, it's kind of like it warms you towards working yourself to death, or it warns. <laughs> sorry, it warns you, not warms you. Okay. Warns you <laughs> that makes about more it. sense. Um, you know, it's just telling people, "Hey, enjoy life. Hey, take that hit and relax." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, breathe. I think this is kind of so. If you don't know anything about Pink Floyd, Pink Floyd actually, much like Fleetwood Mac, started out as a blues band. Mm. Blues was huge in the UK and actually all over Europe around this time. So there were a lot of bands like this who kind of started, and then they they ended up morphing when they got new players and stuff. And the same was uh, with uh, Pink Floyd, and the kind of when they got David Gilmore here is really mm-hmm. when the sound of Pink Floyd went from blues or pseudo blues to kind of this psychedelic rock almost yeah yeah i mean this, and this is really the sound that we all know them for and that mm-hmm. makes sense because looking at it this is their eighth album yeah eighth studio album so like they definitely had to um you know come into their own eventually yeah um and you know you get uh, you definitely can hear the difference in sound with the, as you mentioned the kind of the slow moving pace of this first song and David Gilmore's vocals, which I believe he sang on Breathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, in fact, he sang, well, not on all. He sang on most of the ones here except for the last two. He, he has kind of a almost ethereal mm-hmm. guy's voice. Yeah. Because he doesn't seem like he's trying too hard. He's just kind of letting 
his vocals out easily. Like he's breathing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It is there is something yes light, angelic about it. Yeah, ethereal is a great, perfect way to put it. <laughs> you already said the word. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's go ahead and move on to the next song, which is an instrumental called On the Run. This is definitely a song, especially when I was younger, where I went, what the hell are they smoking and where can I get some? I'm not usually a big like instrumental guy in, in, in you know, when I want a rock album, I want rock stuff. Um, but there's something cool about this. Song. It is super cool. And I think this album much like, I mean, we, we do talk a lot about like the flow of an album. But this one especially, and I think we've talked to a few of them like that, can really only be listened all at once. Yeah. You really shouldn't be picking out songs. I mean, and yes, you can, and they're songs that are designed to be radio hits sort of. And But like this album really goes straight from one song to the next, and they really want you to experience the whole album, which is just not something I see as much anymore. No, you're right. I mean, this was definitely designed for vinyl you know, not mm-hmm. the digital medium. This is for you put the, the the diamond tip at the top and you don't stop it till the end. And I couldn't fathom. We've talked before about like, you know what? Oh, I really think this one would start the album better or we should change the end one. I can't fathom changing any of these oh, order no. because they do flow so perfectly. And you're, you know, you're taken on a journey. You're taken on a story with this. And I think that's why people try to push the whole Wizard of Oz thing or other stuff because mm-hmm. there is a lot of us. There's a big story element that you feel because you're going so smoothly from song to song and you're hearing all these different sounds and other stuff that you're getting from other songs into mm-hmm. the, into songs later and other stuff that it's just like it, this, this whole album definitely, um, was structured together. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was meant to be put together in this kind of way. And it, it just, um, man, it, it, it melts, man. Yeah. They don't want you reading the chapters. They want you to read the whole book. Yep. Um, they used a special kind of synthesizer for this, I believe, called a uh, Synthi AKS to kind of get the wobbling sort of yeah. Doppler effect. Um, you get some really interesting, weird sounds like people talking like in a distance or like yeah. someone running. There's some laughs at some point as well, like just different, different stuff. Um, yeah, it, it just and it feels experimental, but mm-hmm. at the same time, it still feels extremely musical when mm-hmm. i hear some experimental music i'm just like god fuck no i don't want to i don't want to hear that you're just kind of <laughs> clanging into my ears this one experimental but like enjoyable all at the same time yeah. and, and i gotta give a shout out to uh, uh nick mason for running that hi-hat the entire like almost four minutes and he doesn't stop Nice. He doesn't stop until you get that weird crash. Yeah, at the end. At the end. <laughs> yeah, you say a whole eruption and like horse clops uh, at the <laughs> end. It's like, okay, again, to me, 
They're trying to tell us something. I don't know what the fuck it is, but they're telling us something. Well, it definitely feels like we're traveling somewhere. Mm-hmm. We're going somewhere. They're trying to take us somewhere. We're going from, I mean, we are going from breathe to time in the terms of the album, but they're definitely trying to take us, I think not just figuratively, but kind of literally on a journey with this song. The, the pacing, the way it kind of builds up too. I'm, I'm excited for the journey because of that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Al, I'm going to say this now. I don't expect this episode to last too long because there's actually not a lot of songs on this album. Mm-hmm. Pink Floyd is notorious for writing extremely long songs. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite albums from them is Wish You Were Here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like a full hour album. And I think there's only five songs on there. <laughs> it's wicked. <laughs> Some of them are like at least 10 minutes long. Yeah. So maybe it might not be an hour, but it's it's definitely a good length. That's what my wife always says. <laughs> a good length. Always? Always a good length. Shut up, John. Always. Yes. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and move to the next song on the album, which is called Time. Now, this is definitely a song I appreciate more since I've been older, and not necessarily because I appreciate the music better, better or more because I'm older. I've I appreciate I've always appreciated the music. It's the message. Mm-hmm. It's the message that's going on with the song that I'm tending to appreciate more because I'm older. Yeah, I mean, yes, we we definitely realize now that time can slip by uh, and people don't realize it until it's too late. And that's kind of the main thing with the song. And it's just like, damn, that hits you harder. Definitely. It definitely hits you harder in your, you know, 40s, John, uh, and, uh-huh. and me in my mid 30s. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially there's a line where he kind of says like, and then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one yeah. told you where to run. Uh, you you missed the starting gun. And I, sometimes I feel like that. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like, where, sh- where should I be right now? Should I be 40 years old making a podcast with my brother? <laughs> I don't know. Or should I be, should I have been somewhere? But I think in the end, you really can't dwell on it because mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing that'll just drive you mad. Um, the other thing I want to touch on is the intro. You get this cool kind of clock sound. Yeah. Um, you get chiming clocks to go with it. And then this neat little guitar riff. But since I'm a drummer, I've always focused on those toms in the background. And I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure he is using what's called roto toms. Roto toms are are drum head on what look like a spindle. And you rotate the tom to change the pitch. Hmm. So instead of having to individually change the lugs to tighten or loosen to change it, you can literally change it as you're going. And one of the benefits of those types of toms, especially in the 70s, was that you could put them into a specific pitch. If you listen to the toms, they are in the opening chords. They are Hmm. pitched to what is being played. So 
it helps then for it to really blend with the music yeah. because they're not sticking out because yes, toms, we think of toms as kind of these low sounding things. I mean, he is using higher toms in this case, but they are pitched. It's just that in some, in a lot of cases, the pitch of the toms is harder to hear. So in this case, you can really hear how it's matching up with the key of the song. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. I mean, just for me, ultimately, that that opening, um, as you put it, there's alarm clocks. It becomes cacophonous. That was the word that came to my mind was cacophony. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes madness, and then you get the music from it. And then you get really the first, like, real rock kind of song with this, this yeah. uh, in this album so far. Um, it's great. You know, I really, really appreciate that. And them, them being, you know, this psychedelic slash rock band slash everything, um, this is a fantastic song. And I do, I do like, and I think you just mentioned this, I do like how they enter, how the song really enters. You do have kind of an introduction, and it's all kind of ethereal, and then you, the drums just coming in, boom, boom, do, 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 and then they just kind of rock out. And they're not going, they're not going heavy and fast. Yeah. They're, everything is slow and methodical, and they want you to do this. This is another one where I think the inclusion of the background singers Adds a ton yeah, to I, what is going on. I even heard a, I think a female voice at one point on this song. Yeah, you get some, you get what you're getting is some people who are just kind of laying down a harmony, and then it kind of like if you're listening to like um, a church choir, mm. you'll have that one person in the front whose job it is is to kind of soar above yeah. the choir, who's singing like kind of improvising all these little like, runs or what we would call in, in well in classical music we call them melismas. Um, Bless you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know what that makes me think of? I immediately think of Blues Brothers with that one scene. I think it's Shaka Khan who does that. I guess she yeah. melismas all over um, in that scene in Blues Brothers when it's uh, the James Brown song. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. I, I do. <laughs> uh, but th- it's such a well-put-together song. Yeah. Uh, all right. So speaking of kind of female singers, let's go on to the next song, which is called The Great Gig in the Sky. to me kind of sounds like what you would hear uh walking into church okay <laughs> interesting yeah I mean, this is a funky song definitely not my favorite on the album um but i don't dislike it i want to say mm-hmm. uh you know you get a lot of that exactly that spoken word and then claire tory claire tory yeah. claire tory um who apparently said um, about this song, particularly that the album's main focuses are death, money, and time. Mm-hmm. And so for this song, uh, they wanted you to be able to kind of feel the morning. And that was her inspiration. That was her motivation to kind of sing and do all those kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I guess that kind of, you're really feeling it like in church. And so, mm-hmm. sure, I'll give you that. Okay. Um, I've also heard, actually watched on a documentary that, um, in earlier takes of this song, she was improvising words and stuff like that. And they came to her, they were like, no, no, we just want vowels. Yeah. Vo- like, we just want sounds. We don't yeah. want 
any words. Yeah. So she had to kind of go in and it was sort of like her response was, all right, it's your money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she went in and did it. Yeah. I have, I have the lyrics or the, the spoken word parts if you okay. want to hear them. Yeah, of course. So it says, um, uh, this, this is what they say for the spoken part. And I am not afraid of dying. Any time will do. I don't mind. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. Uh, and then there is a whispered line at 3.34 into the song. Um, the lyric book says, it's, it's uh, if you can hear this whispering, you are dying. That's what it says in the fucking lyric book of well, the Well, that's thing. not creepy or exactly. anything. But I listen to it, and it doesn't say that. <laughs> I listen to it intently, actually. Uh, it's like a female voice, and it says, I never said I was frightened of dying. So, I don't know, it's just different stuff. But yeah, they're definitely pushing that aspect, uh, that element of this album. Um, that, okay. you know, we're all fucked. We're all, we're all, we're all going to die. You some people going to die? Well, Adam, they say that you can't take it with you. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about the next song, which is called Money. Money. So here, I think what we're getting is a couple things. We're getting a combination of the kind of progressive, psychedelic, more progressive rock than anything mm -hmm. mentality that the band is going, coupled with their kind of blues roots. Yeah, I could see that. You can de you can definitely hear when they move into kind of the the later section, kind of the guitar section. You definitely hear the blues, uh, you know, blues jazz influence there. But even with the weird. Um, one because this song is very famous for the fact that it's ba it's basically in seven four. Okay. Uh, the bass lick, which this is the uh, song my band played in high school, so I became very intimate with the bass part because that's what I played, um, and that is the most prominent part I believe on on this song. You kind of have a uh, um, the boom 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 two three yeah. Four. And so it, and then there's some weird like five four measures in there. Like mm. it's really they really mess with time in this song about money, which is a little weird. Um, but it the song is still it still feels like it flows really well. A lot of that has to do with what Nick Mason is doing on the drums. He's actually keeping a relatively straight beat um, with only a few hiccups to make it not feel so weird all the time. Okay. I want to definitely shout out the rhythm section on this one. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The, the drums obviously, but to me that bass, like dum 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 dum, like that line that they just kind oh, of yeah. reiterate. I, like it's so I good. Think, uh, if you can, if you can have a song with a very memorable bass line that people will sing, um, you've done you've done more than your job as the bass player. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, which the song was written by Roger Waters, who was the bass player. So there's no okay. real surprise there. Yeah. Uh, it hit number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it became Pink Floyd's uh, first hit in the U.S. Okay. The one that really introduced them to our country. So welcome to the U.S., guys, <laughs> um, back in the day. But yeah, it's 
Iconic. This is such an iconic song for them. Yeah. And you gotta love, I mean, because similar enough to how they used clock sounds or other stuff um, mm-hmm. in like that opening song, uh, they're taking these noises that are not musical noises and then they're putting them to a beat and then getting the music under there and it's just like, oh shit, that's music. At first you're like, <laughs> what am I listening to? It's just these fucking noises. Oh shit, it's music. I'm listening to music. And it, it's just like, damn, that's cool. They're definitely using um, sort of found sounds, if you yeah. will, to, to create. So, I mean, it's not anything that we would think of as unusual now, especially in the age of, in the age of electronica mm-hmm. and, you know, MIDI and stuff like that. But back in early 70s, this sort of thing was definitely very different and would have taken a long time to do considering they had to do this all on tape. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I've seen like what those guys have to do to tape in order to really edit it. And I can tell you this, I'm glad I live in the age I live in. <laughs> I really did not want to have to do that shit. Yeah. Similarly, I'll just throw in like my expertise with editing. Uh, I'm so glad I don't have to be hunched over um, like, you know, working on a, on a real like, you know, 35 millimeter cutting and splicing like, Sitting in front of a computer and like being able to play with stuff and like move it around at your will and not have to worry about, you know, fucking up the actual film or whatever it is you're cutting on. um, It's wonderful. I will say this, though. There is there is one, I think, benefit to tape um, that we've lost in digital, and that is committing to what you've done. Because we live in an age where you can undo anything that you've done. Yeah. But in that time, you kind of have to decide, is it really worth it to undo what I just did if you really, you know, did you fuck up a little bit mm-hmm. or did you fuck up a lot? Like, do you really need to go back and do it? You, I think sometimes it's, sometimes you just have to put it out there. Yeah. Because you can, you can hunch over something as much as you want and fine-tune, and eventually I feel like you'll end up doing more harm than good the more you tune with it. So at some point you That's have cool. to step back and just be like, this is what I'm putting out. Cool. I appreciate that. Uh, and then one other little thing I just wanted to mention about this song. In 2008, Guitar World magazine listed uh, Dave Gilmore's solo um, as the number 62 among readers' votes, mm-hmm. uh, number 62 of the greatest 100 guitar solos. Uh, I think it is a fantastic guitar solo. I yeah. do not think it's Pink Floyd's best guitar solo, mm. but I think it's definitely a, a good one. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next song, which is called Us and Them. I tell you what, this is quite possibly the most ethereal song on this album. Um, what they're doing with um, uh, Gilmore's voice with that echo, yeah, really does give you a sense of space. I was gonna say, I mean, song. to me, one of the most you say ethereal, I'll go psychedelic, and okay. I'm just like, yeah, kind of getting into my mind, just well, like, ah! I'm, I'm feeling like I'm on <laughs> drugs and I haven't had anything. Uh, it's kind of what this song's <laughs> doing to me. <laughs> Uh, that's fair. Um, it is very chill. Um, 
there's not much to the song. Yeah. It just kind of flows very slow. Um, and again, you get that kind of light, angelic, ethereal voice uh, that Gilmore kind of gives you here. He's not going too hard with this one. No. Um, and the the reverb and the and the the delay is actually what it would be not called the echo. Um, really does add to the openness because there's not too much going on. You mm-hmm. have a very simple drum beat. You've got very simple bass beat, and the guitar's really just kind of playing chords. It's not busy. They want you to listen to what is going on in the vocals. They don't want you to be distracted by all the little things going on. Okay. Yeah. It's it's. I get some kind of jazzy vibes with this one, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, kind of the us and them, the lyrical kind of um, mentality is kind of you're getting two different sides, kind of images of war, uh, that kind of stuff with this one. Uh, it hit number 101 on the Billboard Hot 100, so just barely didn't crack into the 100, but it's an okay song. I mean, I don't again, don't dislike it, but um, not one I'm going to go listen to. It's definitely not one I seek out, Yeah, unless I'm just listening to this whole album or I do have a Pink Floyd playlist that this is on but I don't ever go in like mm-hmm. specifically like oh man I'm jonesing for some us and them <laughs> yeah fair enough it's just kind of like a happy one that when you're when you when you get to it you you just vibe out with it yep uh, all right and then we go to a, another track and there's another instrumental called any color you like This song definitely sounds like they were fucked up in the studio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could do without this one. If there was one I had to pull out, it's this one. I agree. If there's any one song in this album, you know, gun to my head, it would it would definitely be this one. They're just they're fucking with sounds, they're fucking with distortion and yeah. doing other stuff. And they're they're doing experiments, which I yeah. I can appreciate and and respect because you know that the only sometimes the only way you're going to move forward is if you try the unusual, mm-hmm. if you try the weird thing, um, and sometimes it's going to work, and sometimes it's not going to work, and sometimes it's just okay. And to me, this song is just yeah. just kind of okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I've never I've never been on acid while listening to this album. I've actually never been on acid ever. We can change that, John. Uh, no, we can't. Uh, <laughs> I'm too old for that shit now. Uh, but I imagine. That this song might work with that, prob. You know what? Probably, I have not uh, tried this album on weed. Uh, <laughs> Props to our cousin Matt. I know he'd like that. Um, but yeah, or or with any drugs, and um, it probably would help that that song specifically. Yeah, that's fair. All right, we're gonna kind of we're gonna go ahead and move on to that to uh, the two last songs. Uh, we'll do them individually, but they are kind of meant to be listened to back to back. They're mm. definitely. Uh, meant to be combined. Uh, The first one is called Brain Damage.
So we finally get our uh, album title. I love it when they say that, like, like whenever they say the name of like the movie in the movie, uh-huh. you know, uh, they did it right here with you know Dark Side of the Moon, and it's just like yes, it's like one of the, like that baby clinch <laughs> meme that I felt right when it, when I saw that when they did it. Oh, uh, fair enough. Um, this to me is another kind of classic song yeah. off of this album. Uh, very kind of uh, psychedelic, mm-hmm. a little bit with it. Great. Use of the back vo- background vocals in this one, the mm-hmm. really pushing the 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 sonic harmonies uh, forward with this. Um, and Adam, I often find that the lunatics are on the grass. Lunatics <laughs> are on the grass. Yes, yeah, very often. Um, yeah. So just looking into it a little bit. So Roger Waters, Roger Waters, Roger 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 Waters. He stated. Um, about writing this one, about the insanity-themed lyrics. They're based on former uh, frontman uh, Sid Barrett, his mental instability. Oh. So, so basically there's a line, um, and if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, uh, that specifically references Barrett's behavior near the end of his kind of tenure with Pink Floyd mm-hmm. um, because of his mental issues that he was having, there were a few occasions where Barrett would play a totally different song than the rest of the band in the middle of a concert. <laughs> and so he just, he wasn't there with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just kind of alluding to that. Wow. And that leads us into our last song on the album called Eclipse. Hello. I think this is a great, almost perfect finale to an album. I like that a lot. I, I totally agree with it because this you've had a lot of flow, obviously, as we've talked about mm-hmm. that word. Um, you're getting some some bigger, some smaller, um, but like we're building. We're building yeah. and we're building, and then literally we are coming to this big, bold explosion of a song, I feel it is, mm-hmm. and it works really well. Yeah, I think we're definitely... They definitely pushed the climax of the album to right at the end. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always work, but in this case, it totally works. Yeah, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. It, it absolutely it, – sometimes when you're going on a musical journey um, with an album – you know, you can kind of feel like you're, you're not getting enough closure. You're not getting, you're not really being taken on that story like you wish. But mm-hmm. this album does it, man. Yeah. And this song wholeheartedly kind of comes to that conclusion the way that you want. And uh, I should have mentioned this before, but both Brain Damage and Eclipse, uh, it is Roger, Ro- see, now you got me doing it. <laughs> uh, Roger Waters, who is singing, mm-hmm. uh, he's doing lead vocals on this one, um, which I think he... He and David Gilmore sound similar, mm-hmm. not exactly right, but similar enough that I don't think I ever noticed for a long time yeah. that it was a different singer yeah. from David Gilmore. Me neither. Uh, did you? There is uh, some whispering at the end of this song. 
Um, uh, I've never, I've, I don't know if I've noticed, but if okay. I've noticed, I've never paid any attention. So yeah, to it. so you get some heartbeats and you get some whispering. I do remember the heartbeats. Heartbeats, yep. And so kind of at the end of that, uh, it says, "There's no dark side of the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark." Oh shit! <laughs> uh, and Did they say all shit? He didn't say all oh, shit. Okay. That was that was some Adam Flair for everybody. <laughs> uh, and actually, the person who said it, it wasn't anyone in the band. They had the doorman of Abbey Road Studios <laughs> do do that part. <laughs> Well, I just gave him a little thrill. Yeah, there you go. So. Here, here's a little something for you for opening the door for us for yeah. these last few months while right. we rake this album and exactly. get high in the studio. <laughs> um, I did. I tell you what, I did see a documentary about the making of this album with Alan Parsons. Um, I didn't actually okay. see the whole thing, but they went back to Abbey Rose and they kind of showed where, like, where the studio was, and the studio that they shot this in because most recording studios actually have multiple studios in them. They'll mm-hmm. be different sizes. Usually they have one big giant room. Um, usually, usually that's called studio a, that's the main one. Mm-hmm. That's where they'll put all the big stuff to do drums, but then they'll have a few other studios a little bit smaller. And the one that they recorded this one in was pretty small. Okay. And it's amazing mm-hmm. to me how, how big of a sound they really get with it. You're right. Cause we, I mean, we've been talking about space and we've been talking about just like kind of this, you know, psychedelic feel and the thing is, the sound on this album, it, it feels out of this world. It feels yeah. like you are just like, you know, yes, way bigger than like a, a little, you know, a small, you know, 10 by 10 room or whatever the heck, uh, you know, you might play it. And it feels like it's just expanding infinitely. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to kind of talk about this because I find this fascinating, um, kind of turning into a kind of a audio file a little bit. Um, uh, what kind of file? An MP3 or an AAC <laughs> or uh, a wave? AIF, A track. <laughs> Sorry, I know what you meant, P H I L E, but yes. I, I hear audiophile and I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so nowadays, if I'm writing a song or if I'm recording a song and I want to add a little bit of reverb to the sound, I just have to press a button. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't really have to have anything special. You know, the free, uh, you know, you're, if you have a Mac, you have GarageBand, and GarageBand has a reverb on there for free. And, and the reverb is actually pretty decent. But at Abbey Road, they had a specific room for reboot, and it was this giant chamber. And what you would do is you would pipe the music into a speaker into the big giant room, like it's almost like an elevator shaft. And then there would be a microphone on the other end that would just Mm. record the sound coming out of the speaker through the air of this to create the... Uh, reverb, and so they would do that with you know only the vocals would be piped through, and then they would record it through that. And sometimes they would do it while they were singing. Sometimes they would do it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I actually I've seen that they they still have that room, but they actually have a motorized ceiling where they can bring the ceiling down to restrict how big the oh, reverb okay. actually gets, which is fancy. I, I appreciate that, but honestly, just, just give me the buttons. I can turn. It's a little bit easier. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. It may sound, not sound exactly the same or just as full, but it's sounds probably pretty it's good. Pretty, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good. Uh, all right. Well, that is the end of the dark side of the moon. And it was a little bit short, but there, you know, as we mentioned, there wasn't a lot of songs on this album. There usually mm-hmm. aren't on most Pink Floyd albums. They like to, they like to linger. They like to experiment with their songs and, uh, they definitely appreciate a good guitar solo, mm-hmm. uh, and a lengthy one sometimes. Yeah. So Adam, why don't you give me your final thoughts, especially as someone who was aware of this album, but maybe didn't. You know, dive too deep into it when they were younger. 
Yeah. Um, pretty much haven't hid how much I've appreciated this mm-hmm. album. Uh, you know, and I can say there's definitely not not for you, but for me, there's other podcasts out there that can break this down way better than I could. You know, you definitely break it down musically much better than I can. Um, but like, you know, the thematically, there's a lot of very cool stuff with this album. There's a mm-hmm. lot of things that um, when you're looking into it and you, I think, has really good re-listenability as to why it's become an album that I'm sure with all those sales that it's had, it's one of those albums that people out there have to buy in every format mm-hmm. that comes out. Like, okay, you have to get the eight track version. You have to get the, uh, the cassette version. You have to get the CD. You have to get the MP3. You have to get whatever it is. Every mm-hmm. single one, you have to own it. And it's st- stood this test of time because of all the different themes and the interesting sounds that they do and how they turn it into music. I love that. Um, you know, it's an absolutely amazing album. I always personally put Pink Floyd under the tier of like the Led Zeppelins, the Who's, mm-hmm. some of those older or those other like I love like the big loud rock sounds mm-hmm. and then and Zeppelin and the Who are great for that. Yeah. Um but re- and, it, and part of it is because I just haven't listened to enough Floyd. I'll tell you that straight up. But re-listening to this one, man, I fucking loved it. And uh I really enjoyed the internal state that I'll put it, even without tripping, I, you know, <laughs> even without, you know, having any type of drug or anything at all, it still put me in a very interesting and thought provoking mood that I, uh, I highly appreciated this one. Oh, I can't say too much better than that. Um, this is definitely an album that I've appreciated since I was, since I was a kid, as I mentioned, um, I hung out with a lot of kids who were into classic rock at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band I was in, we did a lot of classic rock covers. And so that influenced my um, listening. And I will say, I think our mother appreciated it because I'm sure there were a lot of albums that I ended up listening to that she didn't have to say, shut that off. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, okay, it's Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, and probably stuff that she listened to. I, you know, I don't really know for a fact, and this is not really a conversation I've really had with our mom, but mm-hmm. I think someday we really need to, is to what the kind of music was that she actually listened to when she was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, both of our parents have, as we've mentioned plenty of times, have had a big influence musically on us. Um, but we kind of know what our dad's influences were, but our mom's is not one that I don't know if I've ever really had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she had listened to lots of exactly. And it's and funny you mentioned that. Mom is also very eclectic. Yeah, she does. She is all over the place. It's funny. Our dad, there was a flow that we had with that. When when uh, the oldest music I remember, Dad always listened to the oldies. Yeah, the old old oldies like the fifties and um, maybe and early sixties. Er- yeah, exactly. Like the really old stuff. Um, and then he eventually shifted into blues and bluegrass, uh, and he's kind of been on that mostly as well, like for, for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Mom. She'll grab whatever. There's a lot of different tastes that I've gotten, and I appreciate both from both sides. Exactly. So, um, All right. Well, that was our review of The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Please join us next time for a Patreon episode, as we are joined by our cousin Matt to discuss the 1998 film Half-Baked, discuss the brief 90s TV show Pro Stars, and recast Half-Baked using actors of today. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at blastfromourpast at gmail.com, and if you want to suggest a movie or TV show from your childhood or to be a guest on the podcast, go over to patreon.com backslash blastpastcast and pick a tier that works for you. 
To find us on social media, search for at BlastPassCast. So until next time, I'm John. And I'm Adam. And thanks for joining us. See you next time. Everybody, I'm Corey. And I'm Zach. And we're the hosts of Podcasting After Dark, a cast dedicated to late night horror and sci fi of the 80s and 90s, often found on HBO and Cinemax. You know, the movies your parents didn't want you watching as a kid. You can find us every other week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. This is what you want, this is what you get.